Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. afternoon, Universe, and welcome to another episode of Concord Matters, where we seek to be of one mind in Christ, confessing back with one voice the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. we got a regular early month compadre of companions here in studio and via the phone, Pastor Sean Smith and Mr. Peter Slayton, along with yours truly, Jonathan Fisk, looking at the apology of the Augsburg Confession, defending justification by grace through faith alone, a good Reformation topic. And I, as we start in this morning, fellas, I, or this morning, this afternoon, fellas, <laughs> I want to ask uh, Pastor Smith, you know, you, you said, you, you warned me that last week it was going to be like this Reformation spectacular extravaganza. And, and I want to know if it really happened. How, how did it go? Oh, it went pretty well. We had good discussion talking about the 500th anniversary in, in terms of our confession of faith as Lutherans and how that is still very much relevant uh, as we see this chief article of our Christian faith, the doctrine of justification, still very much play in. And so uh, I, I think it went great. We had a great team of young pastors. All of them were younger than myself, um, you know, talking about how these things really do still matter, hmm. um, even even to us younger folks that uh, apparently don't like tradition, some would say. So so, so the mythology goes, at least. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed here because Pastor Fisk and I have now been labeled the old guys. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> no. Well, when he says younger than him, I'm like, well, what is, how, how, I'm he's asking. Young, how, he's younger than us. How old are you, Pastor Smith? I'm 34. 34? Yep. Just yep. out of diapers and they ordained you. It's, it's unreal. <laughs> and, and how old are these other young pastors, quote unquote young pastors that are out there? Uh, late 20s, early 30s. My goodness. I got to tell that to the, next, to the next person that tells Babes. me I'm too young to be a pastor. I just had that happen last week. So I can be like, no, I'm 10 years older than those other guys. Everything in scripture was a young guy, you know. He was. He was. And not to be looked down upon for his age. Because really the issue, I mean, this we're joking here a little bit, but really the issue is truth truth is eternal, and it doesn't matter how old you are, a child armed with the scriptures can tell anybody the truth of what God has actually said. So, Do we know how old Melanchthon was as he was writing the apology? I don't. I don't. You I, mean, I, I, I kind of have a feeling that he was probably younger than us as he's writing this document, which is I, way I smarter say, than I am. I could, I could be off here. Maybe I shouldn't say this right on the radio, but I want to say I think he was in his 20s when he was writing this. Huh. Wow. Do, you know, can you, do you know what Luther's birth year was? Smith? Year? Yeah. How old was no, he at the time no. of the Augsburg Confession? Like in his 50s, right? Is that right? I don't remember. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious. I mean, it, we're it, such to, bad to connect Lutherans. those things, I know. We don't know. <laughs> Here we are celebrating the Reformation, and we don't know that it's all about Luther's birthday. I mean, what. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. We have failed. Well, utterly. Before we. Before well, we it, oh. It's 1483. 
1483. So yeah, so he would have been 1530. That and puts him at 47. He's he's the he's the elder to uh, to Melanchthon. So yeah, Melanchthon probably is pretty young, at least in his 30s, if not in his 20s, and and fearlessly confessing. Now that means the apology too. Uh, he is he's a young man full of fire and and vinegar, and we're going to get a little bit of that today as and he snark. Yeah, as he as he <laughs> talks back to the scholastics. That explains why he's so snarky. He's still in his 20s. <laughs> willing to let it go. We're picking up in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, if you're in the Reader's Edition, is Article 5, parentheses 3, and uh, paragraph 219. Again, you know, and if you've been listening for a while, you know that this is this is a long article. This is the one that the seminarians all kind of uh, bang their head against when they think they have to read it. And honestly, when I uh, had a regular practice or have a regular practice of reading the Confessions devotionally, I... I skip this one because it's, it's a bit long it repeats itself a lot and yet as as you said peter uh, before the we got started here there's, there's some real gold nuggets you can find in this too and you want to mm-hmm. pull those out and then remember why why is it worth talking about justification over and over again because it's the only thing we really have to talk about at all at the end of the day so picking up at paragraph 219 melanchthon continues his argument here ambrose says well quoting ambrose the church father grace is to be acknowledged But nature must not be disregarded. That is, he's going to explain it now. We must trust in the promise of grace and not in our own nature. The adversaries act predictably and distort against faith the judgments that have been given on behalf of faith. We leave, however, these thorny points to the schools. And this is where, you know, he is kind of like knocking the scholastics a little bit here. You know, you guys argue over the the split hairs if you want to. The slick logic is plainly childish when they interpret unprofitable servant to mean that works are unprofitable to God, but profitable to us. I'm not exactly confident what he's getting at there, other than that it's connected to the parable that they're dealing with from before. Uh, Christ does speak about that prophet that makes God a debtor of grace to us, although it is out of place to discuss here about what is profitable or unprofitable. Here meaning the article of justification. For unprofitable servants means insufficient, because no one fears God as much, loves God as much, and believes God as much as he should. Let us overlook these cold jokes of the adversaries, more snark, If they are ever brought to light, level-headed people will easily decide what they should conclude. The adversaries have found a flaw in words that are very plain and clear, but everyone sees that confidence in our own works is condemned in this passage. Pastor Smith, you were covering that passage before. You want to bring us back up to speed context-wise on that? Yeah, so they are referencing back to uh, Luke 17, verse 10, where it talks about unworthy servants, and he's essentially saying that, you know, the scholastics, uh, you know, and the adversaries, they're, they're playing word and logic games. And uh, we kind of covered some of that last week of, you know, trying to support their point of why you need these works. And uh, he calls them childish here, and I did some quick math. He can say that because he was actually 34 himself when he writes the Oxford There you go. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we wise 34-year-olds can talk uh, talk about these child games, you know. Uh, but uh, no, The he, unanswerable. He really yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really does. Uh, you know, he, he's pretty frustrated with them because uh, the the thing that they're doing with this is it's really becoming about how to make money for the church um, is is what it's coming about. It's a whole theology developed around this, um, and they're playing childish games with logic in order to support why they should be getting money uh, out of these works and uh, indulgences, as we talked about, it was very much connected to uh, this issue and, and the Reformation. And, and it just, it's, it's not a good 
move to make. And so what he's saying, you know, anyone who's level headed when they when they recognize the truth, when they actually, you know, dig into what the scriptures truly say, they're gonna see that it's it's gotta be by God's mercy because really there's no hope for us if it's on our works. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point you bring up with the context of their argument being uh indulgences and and raising money. We do have a tendency I mean, this is what our, our original sin, our, our sinful nature does, is that we will take something that is clear and twist it in order to fit what we want to do with with that scripture. I mean, that's just, we have to constantly be on guard for that. Um, well, you hopefully have other people who are on guard for us because uh, we never not see it, but that's what they're doing. If the, their motivation is, hey, if we tell people grace is free, they're not going to buy indulgences. We can't build St. Peter's Basilica, you know, all the other things we can do. We got to find a way to make these. How does he say it? Uh, a f- find a flaw in words that are very plain and clear. That is what you just said there. The des- the definition of justification is to take something that already is and attempt to make it straight when it's not straight, right? To try to hmm. so you you take the event that's taken place and then you create the theology to support it, whether yeah. that be excuse or, or what have you. And and it is at the root of our human nature that is what we do is we we want to excuse what we have done and so we seek to justify it. Now the beauty of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has justified our unjustifiableness, but he doesn't do it with our works. He does it with his work on the cross. And he does it in spite of our works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Smith? Yeah, you, you actually see that uh, as you take a look at that Luke passage, which kind of began this section, uh, that citation from Luke 17. You know, they, they very clearly say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. It, it's much like that picture on the last day in Matthew 25 of, you know, we weren't even sure that we were clothing uh, the naked and feeding the hungry and visiting those in prison. I mean, uh, when did we do these things for you, Christ? And, and that's that's the nature of the unworthy servants there. Uh, but, you know, the adversaries here, uh, Church of Rome, has taken that and twisted and kind of trumped up how we need to do our duty. And uh, it's, it's an unfortunate twisting of Scripture is what they've done. Now, am I am I getting this wrong? My memory of the verse is not that when you have believed all things, it's when you have done all things. Uh, to say we are unprofitable servants, I guess it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. But 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 the point really of that verse is we have nothing to offer. Like at, at the best, we still have received everything from God and can give nothing back to him. And I think that's really what Jesus' point is. And then Melanchthon is, is trying to say, you can't flip this around and say, well, yeah, yeah, before before God that's true, but before us, for the sake of our own salvation, now you can profit something. Yeah, I mean, even if you take a look uh, just before this, it's the apostles crying out to Jesus, increase our faith, and he's telling them, you know, the faith, great, uh, faith like a grain of a mustard seed, uh, you know, is, is all that you need. And, uh, you know, it's, it's supporting that point of exactly what you talked about. It's that fear that, you know, if we talk about this by grace through faith, um, you know, that, well, people won't support the church and won't, you know, be active in the church and won't do things. And uh, that's not actually the nature of true living and active faith. And so here they doubt faith is uh, exactly what Melanchthon has made the point several times in this exceedingly long article. Um, you know, you're, you're undoing faith uh, when you make it, you know, an act of my will. Uh, you know, doing works, yes, we need to, you know, get our, our will, um, you know, under control and discipline it and train it uh, and things like that. But it's not in terms of our salvation. 
So that's kind of what he's getting at then moving forward. Paragraph 23 and following. He says, let us hold on to this confession of the church. And this is, this is the point. If you haven't gotten it, get it now. We are saved by mercy. Let no one think hope will be uncertain if we are to be saved by mercy. It's the other way around. It will be unsure without something coming out first that distinguishes those who obtain salvation from those who do not. Don't think that. We must give such a person a satisfactory answer. However, it's now he's going to argue kind of on the scholastics level a little bit here. For the scholastics, moved by this reason, which is that mercy is uncertain, seem to have invented the doctrine of wholly deserving merit, uh, meritum condigni. Thinking about such a thing can greatly exercise the human mind, as you can make up categories and have fun playing in a corner. Uh, we will therefore reply briefly. It is essential to believe that we are saved by mercy so that we may, uh, so that hope may be sure so that there may be a resulting distinction between those who obtain salvation and those who do not. When this is expressed in this way without explanation, it seems foolish. For in civil courts and in human judgment, issues about rights or debts are certain, and mercy is uncertain. But the matter is different in God's judgment. Here, mercy has a clear and certain promise and command from God, right? So so to kind of explain that again, if you're in a court system and you're having your lawyer make the case before the judge, you don't know if the judge is going to have mercy in the sentence on you or not. What you know is the case you present, which is entirely based on your works. And so, yeah, if we're talking about civil ordinances, then you're right, mercy Mercy is an uncertain thing. But in this situation, we have a promise before the judgment even takes place that full mercy and full pardon is going to be granted. So in this case, because we have a command from God, mercy is not uncertain at all. Going on, the gospel is properly the command that directs us to believe that God is reconciled to us for Christ's sake. Quote, John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whenever mercy is spoken of, faith in the promised must be added. This is only one way to receive mercy or receive a promise that's through faith. This faith produces a sure hope because it relies upon God's word and command. If hope would rely upon works, then it would be uncertain because works cannot quiet the conscience as has been said before. Faith makes a distinction between those who obtain salvation and those who do not obtain it. Faith makes the distinction between the worthy and the unworthy because eternal life has been promised to the justified. Faith justifies. I think it's worth highlighting the, the middle of this again. That, that section where it talks about the distinction between mercy being sure versus mercy being not sure because our tendency... Now, going back to uh, line 220, we must, where he says, we must trust in the promise of grace and not in our own nature. Here's what it looks like when we trust in our own nature. Hmm. Mercy is uncertain. I, I, huh, oh, that's not, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, keep talking. That's great. <laughs> Sean is not here, so I'm going to pick on him. Ugh. If I sin against Sean, I, I have no certainty huh. that he's going to extend mercy to me because... He's a sinner just like I'm a sinner. I know my own human nature. I know his human nature. I have no certainty that he's going to extend mercy. Right. From my human reasoning, from my human nature, I look at that and I say, no, no way. That's not certain. But if he some way demonstrates through his actions, through his words, um, justice or mercy towards me, I can be assured of that because of what I've seen him do. And the problem that we humans always have is we say, therefore, that's how God works. Hmm. 
And that's, that's, that's the wrong move that we always make because that's what our sinful human nature does to us. This completely turns it on its head and, and, and scripture says, no, no, that's not how God works. He actually works the complete opposite way. You can actually trust his mercy because of who he is. Mm. Based on his nature alone, you can trust his mercy and know beyond a shadow of a doubt, have that assurance because of him and what he has done in his character and who he is specifically through Jesus Christ yeah, dying on yeah, the cross. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where that happens. It's, it completely turns it on its head. It's beautiful. Pa- Pastor Smith had just mentioned a moment ago the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and right before that's the parable of the talents, which all hinges on what you just said. You got two guys who receive the talents, and they believe that the guy who gives it to them is a, is a merciful guy. Mm. So they go out and they invest and they make some more. Whereas the one guy who believes that th- that this God is going to treat him with pure justice, right? And so he, that's what he would do. Because that's what he would do, exactly. But he, he's the the point of the parable is he doesn't know who God really is. He doesn't know who his master really is. And and we, if we judge God based on how we would act, end up in uncertainty when it comes to mercy. But when we judge God based on what God has said of Himself, then we have a, a an unbelievable but true and merciful God. Pastor Smith, you got to got to chime in on that before we go to break. Yeah, I, I would just uh, quote a really good, awesome pastor uh, from the uh, past of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, named C.F.W. Walter, who uh, talks about this. He says, you know, faith is not merely thinking, I believe. Your whole heart must be seized by the gospel and come to rest in it. When that happens, you are transformed and cannot help but love and serve God. And that's really what they're doubting. They, they're doubting that that is actually true faith, that when my heart comes to that comfort, um, and promise that I receive by faith of what Christ has done for me, my heart is at such peace that I can face whatever in this world, uh, and, I, and I'm going to love and serve God in the midst of everything um, because of that faith. This Christian faith is a living, active thing. Christianity is believing that's true because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Conquer Matters. We'll be right back. Concord Matters is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. I'm Gary Duncan, the general manager of KFUO. Our fall rally week is going on right now with our rally day this Thursday, November 9th. What is the fall rally? Well, it's the time of year each year where we ask those of you who have not given to our ministry in the past to please prayerfully consider supporting this broadcast ministry. Again, would you please pray about it? Consider becoming a first-time day sponsor during this rally week. Also, a first-time giver. Maybe you can't give at the day sponsor level. That's okay. Become a first-time giver to our radio ministry and partner with us as we continue to share the gospel around the world. We have a brand new way for you to give. You can simply text KFUO to 41444 and make your gift today. Again, text KFUO to 41444 and make a gift that way. Of course, you can still give online safe, secure, easy by hitting the Give Now button. You could send an email to us at gifts at kfuo.org and ask about the various giving levels or tell us you'd like to support the station and we'll get back with you that way. Or you can pick up the phone and call direct to Mary at 314-996-1518. 
That's area code 314-996-1518. And give to KFUO during this Rally Week and on Rally Day this Thursday. Thank you for supporting this ministry. We are Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. The Bible Illuminated, in Bibles from the Middle Ages containing beautiful illustrations that bring the Bible to life. One of the most beautiful examples of these illuminated manuscripts on display at Museum of the Bible is the Book of Hours and Psalter of Elizabeth de Bohan, the great-grandmother to King Henry V of England. It contains the Book of Psalms and a Book of Hours, which organize prayers and readings from the Bible to be read at certain hours throughout the day. Illuminated manuscripts were handwritten and embellished by monks and scribes who would labor for years on a single manuscript. And in the years before widespread literacy in Europe, illuminated Bibles became a way for people to learn and understand the teachings of Christianity. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible, opening this week in Washington, D.C. Faith is not an empty shell. Faith believes something. Faith clings to something specific. And the power of the thing that your faith clings to will be equivalent to the power of that faith to stand. To do more than just sit there as a bare and empty knowledge, but to in fact have an impact on your life, on who you are and what you do. Not because it's necessarily going to earn you something, but because of what you actually believe. Talking faith alone in Jesus Christ, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession here in Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Jonathan Fisk with Mr. Peter Slayton and Pastor Sean Smith digging into paragraph 200 and, did I get it right here? Yes, 227. It's on page 162 in the first edition, page number page number 135. 135 in the second edition. That's the yep. black cover. He, length and continues. Oh, I'm going to let you read this, Peter. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll read this one. Here again, the adversaries will cry out that there is no need of good works if they do not merit eternal life. These lies we have refuted above. Of course, it is necessary to do good works. We say that eternal life has been promised to the justified, but those who walk according to the flesh, Galatians 5, 19-21, retain neither faith nor righteousness. For this very reason we are justified. Being righteous, we may begin to do good works and to obey God's law. We are regenerated and receive the Holy Spirit for the very reason that new life may produce new works, new dispositions, the fear and love of God, hatred of lustful desires, concupiscence, and so on. This faith arises in repentance and should be established and grow amid good works, temptations, and dangers. This is so that we may continually be more firmly persuaded that God cares for us, forgives us, and hears us for Christ's sake. This is not learned without many and great struggles. How often is conscience aroused? How often does it awaken even to despair when it shows either old or new sins or the impurity of our nature? 
This handwriting is not blotted out without a great struggle. Colossians 2.14. Which I think is the, the nailing of the debt to the cross first there. Pastor Smith, okay. opening thoughts? Um, well, there's a way in which if the church in Rome would acknowledge that this struggle of what they fear, that the good works won't be there, is actually a product of the sinful nature, and how do we deal with the sinful nature um, then, then we would possibly have agreement here, but there's, there's not agreement there. They think that, you know, you kind of have to cooperate and, and produce these good works, uh, before there's faith, before there's assurance of salvation. And so there, it's just a wrong understanding of faith, as we've talked about, uh, many times here. Um, instead of just saying, look, yeah, I, I acknowledge the sinful nature. Uh, there will be those who are lazy and complacent. Um, but there's a, a way in which we deal with that, um, preaching God's word of law, um, and uh, instead of you know uh, making it a matter of salvation. Now I've got I've got a question about Roman theology here, and I don't maybe you guys can help me out here. But I, I seem to remember, and this is where I, I may need may need correction here, that part of Roman theology includes baptism, getting rid of original sin. Or is it simply the consequences of original sin? Because I'm thinking if if part of their theology is that baptism actually washes away original sin, that could be where that where that disconnect comes, Pastor Smith, that you're talking about there. Um, you know, if they're going to deny the original sin and the effects of it entirely and say it's no longer there, well then, yeah, I could look at this person and say, you should be able to do that on your own. Mm-hmm. If you no longer have that sinful nature or if it's been taken care of in your baptism, my theology should say, yeah, all right, work this up. Let's make this happen. You've got it within you to do this and let's go. Uh, am, am I, maybe I'm not understanding. I think or even your question is coming from a point of view that believes original sin is something more than inherited guilt. That, that, that for them, original sin is not your condition. It is simply the guilt you have inherited from Adam and that baptism takes away that guilt and all that uh, remains is the guilt that you yourself earn. Yeah, I mean, that is my question. What is their view of original yeah. sin and how does that impact this? Because I, I could see the connection there because in the Augsburg Confession, Article 2 is original sin. And if I remember correctly, there was disagreement That's, on Article yeah. 2. They That's didn't the agree with us is. on that. Can I jump in? No. No, 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 no. Too late. Peter's my guest and I'm the host. (laughs) And you're not here. So, yeah, no. We know you have the the Roman Catholic Catechism, like, memorized, so we definitely want your answer on this. (laughs) No, well, um, I I was a part of the show back when we were dealing with Article 2, it seems like, two years ago or something like that. But uh, Just just one. um, Yeah, maybe that's (laughs) But... uh, um, yeah, so I, you know, the very first line in the apology of this is the adversaries approve Article Two, original sin, but in such a way that they actually condemn our definition of original sin, mm. which we gave in passing. So I mean, yeah, so there there is that disagreement, and see, I'll boil it down to the simple Catholic position on this is what Christ did in His death on the cross was. Um, deal with the um, the sin problem that makes it possible for you to love and serve God, and it's up to you uh, to do that in order to be worthy. And so that's where all the good works come in. That's uh, the nature of satisfaction uh, when you when you confess your sins. That you would also then have penance uh, that you do 
uh, acts that that show your um, you know um, love for God and things like that, and, and and that's where these get in. And so they, they their problem is in their definition of sin. They don't see it all connected together. They don't see that Christ died to wipe away um, the penalty of sin and actual sin. So as one of the things we have going on here then, their position that Christ's death on the cross either applied to you in baptism or in some way actually changes your nature to where it is no longer original sin or or total depravity, if we're going to use more Reformed language in this case? Again, I don't think that they think the nature's got a problem. The, the sin is not a condition. Oh, gotcha. Sin okay. is not a condition. Sin is stuff So they're not done. even going to recognize that nature I don't think thing so. to begin now, with. Okay. As we're talking... Uh, Which you, still leads us to the same point. Yes. But yeah, okay. It's important to recognize, though, too, is even as we talk about Roman theology, and this connects to something else that, that you and I were talking about uh, on Facebook recently with Richard and whatnot, um, that... that there's a difference between what Roman Catholics actually teach and then what American Roman Catholics believe, Sure, right? And so as we're saying this out loud, you know, there may be Roman Catholics who are your friends that just to- totally don't agree with yeah, anything I just said. Yeah, you come and say this and they're like, what? That's not what we believe. But it's important to know that there is, if anybody kind of mirrors the, the Lutheran Church in having a confession that they hold to, it is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Catechism, which is as thick as the Book of Concord and, and maybe more uh, intense in terms of its its depth of things that it covers, uh, th- that is what you're supposed to believe as a Roman Catholic, and you're not really free to say you don't believe it. I mean, you are, obviously, you can, but you're not supposed to, right? And 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 so what we're talking about when we talk about what a Roman Catholic believes about sin, we're trying to get at what their catechism says. I just want to say that for the listener, especially if we've got a Roman Catholic listener who's like, I don't believe that. Well, you know, read your catechism. It's, you should. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. So, Pastor Smith? Well, yeah, and I mean, I often like to, well, I do a couple things. I, I, I show the Catholic catechism to my catechism students and say, uh, just be glad you're not Catholic. Uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you're right. It is quite quite thick. Uh, There's a reason ours is called the small catechism. Point. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, I mean, the, the other thing is I encounter a good number of Catholics and so forth, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We just believe that they have this heterodoxy, um, which we tried to solve in the Reformation, uh, but it just didn't uh, didn't work out. But they, American Catholics don't realize how uncatholic they really are. And if you dig into the writings, uh, they would find a whole lot of things that they really don't agree with. But also part of the problem of the Catholic Church, uh, just to be terrible to it, is that they're so big and so massive and have such a wide range and, and so many traditions that have kind of come in with different Catholic orders and things like that, that, uh, I mean, even with our within our own smaller denomination, we have folks that are kind of on a spectrum of things, and, and you know, uh, by and large, our pastors and churches are very faithful and, and so forth. But, uh, I mean, just imagine that as massive and wide as the Catholic Church is, uh, just there's a whole lot of things that fit in under that. I'll I'll let you get that. Pastor yeah, yeah. Smith. I think you gotta no, get your phone right. there, buddy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was gonna say this is this is a I don't know if universal is the right word to use, but this this is a common occurrence in any I don't know belief system religion. I mean, like you like you just said, Pastor Smith, even within our own Lutheran 
group, our own Lutheran denomination, you will find people who don't hold to what we confess in our writings. I mean, th- this is a perpetual problem. You'll find a Mormon, who, you know, most Mormons won't actually confess that their God is living on a planet called Cobol and he has many celestial wives and, you know, they're the, you know, Jesus and Satan are actually brothers and all, all that stuff. And they're like, even though it's written down in their documents that this is what they believe, they don't actually believe that. So I, I bring this up only because it's helpful the, the reason we do this, you know, with the, the Concord Matters is to help you confess the faith better mm. uh, when people are asking you, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Well, we need to recognize in those conversations as we have them that just because somebody's writings and their confession confesses something, that doesn't mean the individual themselves will. And so they're having some uh, compassion, understanding, uh, whatever it's necessary to to be able to work through with that particular individual well, okay, yeah, you don't believe that, but did you know that that's what your church actually teaches? I mean, we do this with our fellow Lutherans all the time. Uh, just try posting something about baptism on the LCMS Facebook page. <laughs> you, you I guarantee a... you within five comments, well, I'm a lifelong Lutheran member of the LCMS since I was born, and I don't believe that. It's like, all right, well, let's talk about that. Right. What happened? Why not? Here's what our church believes, teaches, and confesses. Here we got an opportunity here. I mean, there's a side in which this is a good thing, not 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 knowing what baptism is, but the the felicitous inconsistency of the heterodox believing the right thing, even though their church body teaches the wrong thing, and this this could probably be said of Lutherans as well, and on some issues. So there's something really good about that. But there's the other thing about you know the, the mind that is renewed in Christ wants to know what it believes and why yeah. it believes it. Right? It wants to be able to confess the right thing. What and, is faithful to Scripture? I want to know that. Yeah, want to be in line with what God. Is really said, and so that's that's what we pursue. And you're kind of on, ideally, Christian dialogue, even Christian disagreement between church bodies or Christians of goodwill should be able to like say, look, we, neither of us is here believing this because we're trying to be evil. Let's go back to the scriptures and find out because we both want the scriptures to tell us the truth, what the truth is. Now, what Melanchthon's facing here, though, is a situation where, and we really were at this point in the Reformation, we had to say, look, you guys aren't doing this in goodwill. You guys aren't even trying to go back to scripture. You got a, a card up your sleeve, which is called money. <laughs> and, and, and that's what you're working after. And now, you're we, actually going to kill us if we don't if agree. If we don't agree. <laughs> so, hey, we got a problem. So, But we don't want to accuse modern day Roman Catholics necessarily of being there. Um, but you got to own your own history then a little bit, too. You were there. And as a church body, some of your theology still is there. Uh, Before we move on and and look at paragraph 230 and following, Pastor Smith, anything else to kind of close that section up? Uh, No. Well said. All right. So picking up at paragraph 230, experience testifies what a difficult matter faith is. And he's talking about believing what Scripture says over and against the experience of life. It ain't easy. It ain't easy to trust what the Scripture says. While we are encouraged in the midst of terrors and receive comfort, other spiritual movements grow at the same time. Knowledge of God, fear of God, hope and love of God. This is the Offington, the struggle of believing against what you see according to the Word of God. This creates something. Knowledge of God, fear of God, hope of God, love of God. We are renewed, as Paul says, in knowledge after the image of its creator or our creator. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. Second Corinthians 3, that one. In other words, we receive the true knowledge of God so that we truly fear him. We truly trust that we are cared for by him and that we are heard by him. So he's getting at here is that the saint 
con- connected with, still fused with your sinful nature, the new man arises within you and does actually believe, does actually love, does actually pursue good works. If we're going to ask only those things, no, of course not only, because you're still dealing with the sinful nature as well, that both of these natures are now living in you as a Christian. But the, the saint nature is a real nature. The believer is a real, regenerate, uh, awakened person. This regeneration, he says, 231, is the beginning of eternal life. Faith. Faith is eternal life right now. As Paul says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. He's talking about now. So the faith that has begun to be eternal life in the spirit is longing for the body to be joined to that eternal life in the resurrection. The honest reader, and this was, you know, he's kind of accusing them of not being honest readers here. The honest reader can judge from these statements that we certainly require good works, which is the accusation, which is that we don't teach good works and faith alone would destroy good works. You can tell we're not against good works since we teach that faith arises in repentance and is bound to increase in repentance. We place Christian and spiritual perfection in these matters. If repentance and faith grow together in repentance, the godly can understand this better than the adversaries teaching about contemplation or perfection. However, just as justification applies to faith, so also eternal life applies to faith. Peter says, obtaining the outcome or the fruit of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For the adversaries confess that the justified are children of God and co-heirs of Christ. Afterward, because works please God on account of faith, they earn other bodily and spiritual rewards. For there will be distinction in the glory of the saints. Kind of a back end there to this, right? That, that in glory we will have levels of reward, even though there is no level of bliss, and that this will be a following of our works or our created state into paradise. The, the big example of this from Scripture being that the, the 12 thrones that the apostles are told that they will sit on, you and I won't get to sit on apostolic thrones in the life of the world to come. That's actually a good thing. I'm okay with that, right? We should all be okay with that. We're going to be blissfully enjoying where we are, that point is not his main point here, right? His main point is we are not against good works. Faith alone does not destroy good works. In fact, if you want real good works, true love of God, true fear of God, true knowledge of God, it starts with faith alone. Sean, go. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. We were pointing you know, at you, didn't you see? No, I didn't. Oh, man. <laughs> it's amazing, you know, an hour and a half away down here. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the, the thing that that really makes that he's he's bringing out here is is what makes possible to believe these things that are difficult to believe by our sinful nature our repentance and faith without those you're right you're you're gonna have folks who become lazy and complacent and aren't living as true christians producing the good works that they're called to do uh you know building the the kingdom of god here on earth through the church and supporting that work um you know but where repentance and faith is, is present, we don't fear those things actually getting done. It reminds me of a conversation kind of in my own personal uh, ministry here that I've been having with uh, someone of another Lutheran denomination from us and, um, you know, talking about how we view Scripture and, and how that denomination likes to throw some things out of Scripture. And it's what I recognized in that conversation uh, with them is that what they're wrestling with is that by our very sinful nature, yeah, we're kind of opposed to the way God calls us to live. And we're kind of opposed to live a whole and believe a whole lot of things that God calls us to believe in scripture uh, in the way that we're to live our lives. But the reality is, is that I can't just kind of beat them over the head 
and and say, well, God says it, God says it. If you don't do this, the the reality is, is it is what God says, and we believe it. It is true. But what is going to be necessary to to say amen to that is repentance and faith. This is it plays into uh, Jesus all the time says, you know, he who has ears, let him hear. I mean, with, without that understanding of faith, we don't have ears to hear. And so this this is what Melanchthon is making the point of exactly when it comes to these good works. And he says, Rome, you're coming at it all the wrong direction because you're misidentifying the sinful nature. You're misidentifying what faith is. Um, you're, you're not going to actually produce with any hope of salvation uh, these these works within your people. He, the, he brings in a statement that just jumped out at me as we were reading it that actually should strike fear uh, into our hearts because here at the end of 232, right before 233, just the simple clause, the godly can understand this better. Hmm. I just, uh, that, that statement jumped out at me. I was like, oh, so if you don't understand it, he is implying that you may not be one of the godly. You may not be one of the regenerate, one of the saved. I mean, he's kind of given a backhanded, look, if you don't actually understand this, you might not actually be saved. That's really scary. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, I mean, just to think about that, if you can't grasp this justification by faith, apart from your own merits, and you fight against that, you might not actually be a Christian. This is the uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If mercy and grace is not the dominant theme of your Christianity, it's not Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> and, You're starting from somewhere other than Jesus on yeah, the cross. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that and that's a challenging and terrifying thought. And and frankly, the the conscience of the Christian being wallowed in repentance in a healthy way is always going to be like, well, is it? Am I? Do I? Right? Whereas the, the adversary's position here, the, the ungodly position is going to be, is going to be defensive. It's going to be self-defensive about that kind of an accusation. Well, he, well, how dare you tell me I'm not a Christian? And he even talks about that earlier at, in one of our readings. How often is conscience aroused? How often does mm-hmm. it awaken even to despair when it shows either old or new sins or the impurity of our nature? This is what will happen as a Christian. Your conscience will arouse you eventually as you grow in sanctification, if I can even say it that way, to the knowledge of the depths of your own depravity. (laughs) There was a Luther quote that I saw on Facebook. I wish I could remember it. Um, But it was essentially something along the lines of, as, as we begin to truly understand original sin, we will become truly terrified at the depths of it. I mean, that's just what happens when you are confronted with that. The problem is, as Rome has done, they'll take that turn and say, uh, you know what, I'm going to deny that doctrine entirely because I don't like where it goes, or we're not. We're going to call that not sin or whatever it is you do. It's like instead of running to the cross and running to Jesus and saying that's the answer, we run to other things, uh, things that, that we can control, that we can manage, if you will, um, in, in one way or another through our own works. Um, and right here he's saying, no, actually what's going to happen is, like you said, it's you're going to see how bad it truly is. And that's actually mm. part of being a Christian. Mm. 
Yeah. That's a good the, thing. The, the growth and <laughs> yeah, again, that's not terminology I use a lot either, that growth and sanctification. But if we meant by it, you know, growth into a downward depressing awareness of how unsanctified <laughs> and unrighteous I really am and how fulfilling Jesus is. As long as that turns us to Christ. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right, exactly. But growth of conscience or, or the awakening of conscience, the reawakening, the continual, continual prodding of the contents, conscience, which doesn't deny that the good work ought to be done, that the good work is good, right? So so at lack of belief is going to say, I need not do it. I don't care if I have to do it. The conscience is going to say, I wish I had, I want to, right? The good that I would do is what I find myself not doing enough of. Thanks be to God for Christ. That, that is sanctification, ultimately. Pastor Smith, before we read on, anything? Well, I want to be careful that we don't sound too reformed now either. Yeah. Well, that was my goal. Side. I'm trying. I'm trying. To... <laughs> we, the pendulum has swung to the other side. Look, I've been making uh, progress. Don't don't mess with my progress. <laughs> well, but the the reality is is it's uh, it's the the other. Well, it's the same side of the coin, actually. Um, the 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 struggle is is that um, instead of talking about growth and sanctification, I've learned to adopt the language of growing deeper in the gospel. Because the more, I, the deeper I go into the gospel, and you guys talked about it really quite well, um, but the deeper you grow into the gospel, the more you recognize, you know, yeah, my conscience is wrestling with this here. Am I a real Christian? Well, don't climb in and try to figure out am I elect or not. You know, that's a reformed game and, and so forth. But, you know, it should drive me to the cross, and there I should find mercy and shame on the church body that doesn't proclaim that mercy to me, because when I receive that mercy, I grow deeper in that gospel, and my heart comes, as I quoted C.F.W. Walter earlier in the show, my heart comes to rest in that gospel, and I have such peace with that, that it just, it, it abounds in so many good works. And so that's the way I have learned to cultivate talking about this, is growing deeper in the gospel, rather than growth and sanctification or anything like that. Yeah. So, so so, that we don't become reformed, Patrick Smith has told us that our heart needs to rest in C.F.W. Walther, and we have, we have heard, <laughs> heard him clearly <laughs> saying that. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was just going to add on to that. To you, sleep, you truly are that. You Walter, and your heart will rest in the gospel. Yes, we, we, <laughs> that's, that's we understand, better. Pastor Smith. Yeah. We're just poking. Yeah, I was just going to, you know, clarifying what I'm saying. It's it's that acknowledgement of you are truly that bad. No matter how how bad you think you are, it's probably actually worse. But here's the promise. Here's the promise speaking to you in the depths of that depravity while you were yet a sinner, while while you still are a sinner right now in your Romans 7 simul usus et peccator life, here is that promise, which, which Melanchthon has been talking about over and over and over again. Here's the promise. Here's the mercy. It is for you in your current condition as you are. You are truly that bad, and Jesus is that good. And, and that, yeah. that's the emphasis of, of the entire thing. I, you know, I don't like to think of sanctification as a ladder. And, and that, that's kind of the, what you were getting at there, I think, Pastor Smith. It is not something I climb. My holiness is more like, and I'm, I'm going to use the Article 3 kind of image, uh, what is the church in the, in the historical imagery of the, uh, of, of the church's understanding of herself, is a ship. You know, I'm, I'm not on a, a ladder in the ocean doesn't do me any good, right? But a ship, this I can stand on. I don't want to get off it. I really don't. Not in the storms and the chaos 
spouse of the present age. I want to stay on the ship, and I want to ship as a pilot who's who's not me, someone who can see the way through the storm. And to think of sanctification in that way, that it's, a, it's something I stand on, and there's certainly plenty of work to do on the ship, but it's something that's actually moving me, uh, and it does not rely on me moving moving it. So can I get a little more text under our belts before we move on, guys? Yeah, We've got go just a few ahead. minutes left here. Uh, paragraph 235, uh, continuing to like talk about this heavenly rewards concept, so a little different direction from where we were just talking. He says, Here the adversaries reply that eternal life is called a reward, and that therefore it is merited in a wholly deserving way by good works. We reply, brief, we reply briefly and plainly. Paul calls eternal life a gift. Oh, it's just, yes, right there. Focus on that. Circle that word, gift. Because by the righteousness presented for Christ's sake, we are made at the same time sons of God and co-heirs of Christ. As John says, John 3, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. St. Augustine says, as also do many other others who follow him, quote, God crowns his gifts in us. Elsewhere it is written, your reward is great in heaven. That's Luke 6. If these passages seem to conflict for the adversaries, they themselves may explain them. <laughs> There's the snark, right? So if it sounds like the adversaries are wrong, they are, is kind of what he's saying. <laughs> but, but the adversaries are not fair judges. They leave out the word gift. They also leave out the primary teachings of the entire matter. Furthermore, they select the word reward and twist its meaning not only against Scripture, but also against the common use of language. In this way, they conclude that because our works are called a reward, there should be a price paid for eternal life. They assume they are worthy of grace and life eternal and do not stand in need of mercy or of Christ as mediator or of faith. I mean, he's he's not really pulling the punches there at the end. Thoughts? Yeah, can I jump in here? Please. Um, I think I've come to understand this uh, in the nature of understanding the three articles of the creed, and especially when you recognize that the second article, the article on our redemption, which is what we're talking about here, our salvation won for us in Christ, it, it flows out naturally from that first article where we talk about all these first article gifts that God gives us. I mean, are those, would we look at those as rewards? Have I earned the fact that I have a life? Have I earned the fact that I have uh, food, clothing, house, home, wife, and all these wonderful blessings um, that come to us by God's fatherly and divine goodness and mercy? Uh, I mean, that, that is so key to understand that when we understand all of these come to us by God's gift, and he, of course, gives them to us to be used. Uh, to his glory. Uh, and, and when we recognize this salvation, which is our biggest thing that we need from our Heavenly Father, because we can't earn it on ourselves, we recognize what a gift it is. Our heart really does cling to that and say, ah, oh, this is a beautiful thing. And even though I am quite unworthy of it, um, I'm going to thank and praise, serve and obey him with this wonderful gift that he has given. And so, yes, faith will produce works. Uh, but if you look at it as a reward, something I've earned, well, then I'm prone to sit back all the more, I think, um, at least in my life. I can see my own mind working this way. If, if it's something I've earned, then I can do with it what I want. And if I want to sit back, then I'm probably more prone to do that than when I see it as gift given to me. You gave me a cool image there with uh, pointing out, and it's exactly right, that the good works are the reward 
of eternal life themselves. They're not rewarded. They are the reward. So think about this. Like you're at, at some like sporting event, end of the season thing, and everyone's getting their trophy and you get handed your trophy and you're like, where's my trophy for my trophy? Do I get a trophy for getting a trophy? <laughs> right? Like, like you, that's what we're trying to do when we make good work something that gets gets rewarded, right? They are the reward of being created by a good God <laughs> and, and getting to live under his kingdom. L- yeah. living, living within his perfect will, uh, as we've talked before, about his his law is his will for our life that that is a reward itself that I, I'm living as God wants me to live as mm. he intended me to live and this is a wonderful thing yeah I mean uh, Pastor George Borghart uh, of Higher Things is fond of quoting I believe uh, Professor Norman Nagel of Emeritus and and now in glory, uh, formerly at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. So just th- this little line and it can be it can be misunderstood but it's it's really important. He just says it's all gift. It's all gift, right? And the, the, to understand how God is approaching us, even in our sinful condition, he's turning the evil for good. It's all gift. He keeps wanting to do more good. All the evil, that's from from us. And the more that we believe that, the more we're going to want to extend that grace to other people. Uh, with about uh, two and a half, three minutes here left, Pastor Smith, closing thoughts on the hour. Um, what a wonderful gift it is that uh, we have this by faith. But I do want to clarify, you just said Dr. Nagel in glory. Did I miss something? Oh, did I, 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 think I, did I missed something, too. I did it backwards. I'm no. sorry. It's, it's Dr. No. Feuerhan. No. It's one of Foyer two great men, and one has left us. The other's still here. You're right. Yeah, I was going to say, I just Appreciate saw it. Dr. Nagel about that long ago. Our listeners okay. just had a heart attack. Like, what's yeah, going right, on? Right. Ah, Fizz, what are you doing? I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, I almost did. Yeah. But, uh, yes, uh, well, and, you know, as we talk about that in glory, I mean, that. that uh, that's exactly what leads such faithful lives of faithful confessors before us. Um, I, I knew Dr. Forehan very well. I grew up around him, and uh, uh, he is the one who rests in glory. And he led such a life, a faithful life of confessing Christ uh, because his heart rested in the gospel. He saw it as a gift of God to him, and uh, he lived to, to God's glory every single day. And Dr. Nagel does the same, and, and may we uh, endeavor to do the same in our lives as well. I mean, you can just see the reward to the people around them uh, of somebody who lives in that way, the legacy they leave behind isn't a legacy that is focused on them. I think those, I, I have not had the privilege of sitting under either of these men. I haven't been to seminary, haven't been taught in that way. And yet when I hear people speaking of them because their focus was so singularly on Christ and what he has done for them, the gift that that was to those who were around them, their mm-hmm. friends, their family, their students, uh, their their mentees, all of those individuals. I mean, that's the reward for that is just wonderful for everybody who got to be near them. And and I'm like second, third time removed from that, and I'm and I'm experiencing it myself as well. The legacy that they left is the legacy which Christianity has to give us, which is to point that finger at Christ. Is that yeah. image of John the Baptist in the in the great painting, right, where the Christ is crucified and John the Baptist is saying, "Him, look at him, look at him." It's what those men did. It's what hopefully we've been doing in this last hour. Certainly, what the Lutheran confessions do as they point back to Christ and Him crucified as the one hope, the one reason, the one future of Christianity. Talking with Mr. Peter Slade in social media manager of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Pastor Sean Smith down there in Winehill and oh, I don't have it in front of me Pastor Smith 
What's West Point. Your, West Point. Thank you very much. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. You are listening to Concord Matters, where we do believe that what God has said is so unifying, so true, that if we commit ourselves to studying it, what we're going to find is our minds become one in Christ, our words become conjoined in one alleluia, one great confession, and, well, it's all going to lead to that great day in which we stand together under his blood forever and ever. Amen. You listen to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. We'll catch you next week.